you don't know me, uh, my name is Matt Cosma. I'm an associate pastor here. And uh, man, I'm looking forward to preaching God's word here today. So if you do have your Bibles, if you turn to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 18. So uh, Pastor Tim spoke last week, and I mean, he got the, one of the greatest passages of Scripture. I mean, he, uh, the story of David and Goliath, uh, an amazing story that uh, really holds... Uh, an important place, not just in the Christian and Jewish imagination, uh, but really it has an effect just in the Western world and beyond. It's just a very popular story, but it's also a very powerful one. Uh, and so it was a joy to study that last week. Now we're going to look at what, are the, what happens after that with Saul, King Saul, and, and, and with David, this young man who defeated a mighty giant and led the people of Israel in, in battle. And today what we're going to see is we're going to begin to see the rise of David in the estimation of the people, right? God has put his spirit upon David and he has uh, already anointed him as king, but he is not yet in that position and he will not be for a little while. But he is, God is already working to ascend David in the eyes of all the people. But two things we're going to see uh, really contrasted today is pride and humility, we're going to see the humility of people like Saul's son, Jonathan, and David himself, but we're going to see the destructiveness of Saul's pride as he watches this young man on whom the Spirit of God is rising up in the eyes of the people. And so as we read this text today, uh, we're going to take it in sections and we're going to kind of read a little bit and then talk about it little by little uh, and see what the Lord has for us. So if you would join me looking at chapter 18, starting in verse 1. The Word of God says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So in this section here, we see uh, that, uh, that David, and this, what's following after his battle with Goliath, uh, is, is in verse 2, that Saul has responded by putting David into his full-time service. You may have remembered uh, previously in chapter 16, David became one of the members of Saul's court. Remember, he would play the lyre whenever um, uh, Saul was afflicted by a spirit. We'll get to that actually again in a little while. And so, But it appears that he was one of many young men uh, serving Saul in his court, but that he would come and go as needed, that he would return to his father's household uh, and serve as a shepherd and, and do whatever he needed in this place. At this time, uh, Saul now calls David into his court full-time. He's going to serve him uh, full-time. And we see that right now, at this very moment, Saul still likes David. He, he has a favorable view of him, but we're going to see that is not going to last much longer. What we do see here in this first section is Jonathan's loyalty towards David. In verses 1 and 3 and 4, we see that uh, it appears that Jonathan sees or senses uh, that the Lord's Spirit is on David. He may even have a sense from the Spirit of God that this is the one who is going to be king. 
It says immediately that his soul is knit to David, that he loved him as his own soul. Now you have to remember that Jonathan knows that he is not going to inherit his father's crown. Saul was rejected in stages. At two different times, he was rejected from being the king of Israel. He made a a foolish vow. At one point, he offered an unlawful sacrifice in chapter 13. Uh, Samuel, the prophet, came up to Saul and says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, later on, God rejects Saul as king completely, even though he continues in that function, the spirit leaves him. But at this point, that that was a judgment on Saul that said, hey, the kingdom will continue, there will be a king in Israel, but it will not be you, and it will not be your son. Your, Your kingly line will end with you, Saul. And this meant that Jonathan would never take the throne. Not because of anything Jonathan did. Jonathan was actually a courageous man, a man of faith. It's because of a bonehead thing that his dad did. You could, could you imagine, like, you know, that, that, the feeling that would have, that you would have, never going to be able to ascend the throne because of that. Another man entirely would. And Jonathan knew this well before David ever entered the picture, maybe before he even met him. But he looks at, and he, and he witnesses what David has done. He sees his actions, he sees his faith, he sees his courage before uh, Goliath, and he sees a man like himself. You might remember in chapter 14, Jonathan displayed a similar faith and courage. You know, while Saul is kind of sitting back and there's a garrison of the Philistines, Jonathan goes by himself well, with, with one young armor bearer with him, and he ascends the hill and he says, yeah, we can probably take him. With the Lord's help, we can probably take him. And he does, and he goes up there and he destroys you know, the, the, the Philistine garrison. They're not ready for him, and he goes with faith and courage and victory. And so he sees, unlike his father, he sees a, another man who has faith in the Lord, who has courage, and he sees a kindred spirit. And so Jonathan loves him, and he is, his soul is, is knit to him. I was reminded uh, of a quote from a movie, Braveheart, um, a movie about William Wallace. He was a Scottish freedom fighter. And it's, Really good movie, but he says this uh, at one point. Men don't follow titles. They follow courage. Some of you may have experienced that. You know, you have like a boss, you know, who has the title, but they're incompetent. You know, or they don't, they don't do a job well. Or maybe they talk much, but they don't actually produce anything. It, it, it's true. We don't follow people because they have a title. We follow people because we see something in them that is worth following. And just because Saul retains the title of king doesn't mean he's worth following, because in fact he's not. But David, who does not have any title, has courage and faith, and he is worth following. So David and Jonathan exhibit a deep friendship, like a love for one another and a loyalty to one another, to the fact where he makes a covenant with David. And he basically says, like, hey, he, he gives him his, uh, his robe, his sword, his bow. So in one sense, he's saying, hey, everything I have is yours. I'm swearing fealty to you. You know, all that I have is at your disposal. Another thing that could be happening here as well is that by doing this, he's actually like giving David stuff that would uh, indicate that he is uh, well blessed by the son of the king. Like, presumably David wouldn't take these things and go like, thank you, I've got a nice place in my home where I can hang this. No, he would wear that robe, he would wear that sword, and people in the nation would see like, wow, isn't that 
Isn't that Jonathan's robe? Isn't that Jonathan's sword? And so in a way, he, he is exalting David and giving over the things that would exalt him and identify him as the, as the son of the king and giving them over to one who is worthy of them. Very, very humble thing that we see here going on. A gesture saying, David, all that I have is yours and I am at your service. I feel a little burdened that I, I do have to address uh, one thing, and I'll do it very briefly today, but I do need to address the, the nature of the relationship between David and Jonathan. Because at some point you may have come across, or you may come across a commentator or a YouTube um, a personality who, is, who uses the example of David and Jonathan as an example of a homosexual relationship. I think that is a perversion of Scripture. I think it's a twisted way of, of looking at the Scripture. It's actually an example of what we call eisegesis. Exegesis is when you look at a text of Scripture, or really any work or any ancient text, and you say, what is the meaning in the text that we want to draw out? What is the intention of the author in the context? What message are they trying to communicate? Right? Eisegesis is the inverse of that, where, where someone tries to take their own beliefs, their own priors, and, and, and put them on the text and really makes, make the text say something it doesn't mean. That would have been foreign to the author and to the context. And that is what we have in such, in such a, an interpretation as that. There is no indication in Scripture that David and Jonathan had any kind of a sexual relationship. In fact, I think it's kind of odd that in modern minds that there doesn't seem to be much of a category anymore for deep male friendship and a love for one another, even spoken of in those terms, I love you, that does not terminate into a sexual relationship. And it speaks more to the perversion of our own generation than something in Scripture. Because you also hear those same arguments, by the way, apply to Jesus and the Apostle John. So we don't see that. Really what we have here is an example of deep male friendship in Scripture. In fact, one of the only ones in the Old Testament. We see more of that in the New Testament with the uh, the epistles and the, the letters and between the uh, the apostles and the churches and but in the Old Testament, this is a really sweet example of male friendship. Man, we could use friends like this. And maybe sadly, a lot of, a lot of us as we get older, we, we, don't, we don't retain friendships the way we ought to. But it's so necessary for men to have these kinds of relationships that often women do and our wives do and our daughters do. But men struggle to. It would be a good thing for us to develop such loyalty and godly friendship that would stir us in our calling before the Lord. But it's neat. One thing that's really awesome about this relationship between David and Jonathan is that God is surely orchestrating this in such a way as to confirm David in his calling. Because he has anointed him. This, David is to be the king over Israel. And by all rights, consider this, by all rights, Jonathan should be his worst enemy. Jonathan is the one who's had the, 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 the future kingdom stripped from him because of his father. Jonathan is the one who will never be king. And, and instead, he sees David, and he could easily become jealous, envious, bitter. But instead, he loves him and swears fealty to him. And so God takes David's would-be worst enemy into his greatest ally. It's pretty neat how God does that. And we see that John the Bapt- uh, Jonathan becomes almost like a John the Baptist-type character for Jesus. That he prepares the way for the soon-to-be king. He is, he, by giving him his cloak, by giving him his sword, saying, these things are yours, you deserve them. And he, he is beginning to elevate him in the, in the eyes of all Israel when he could have been doing that for himself. 
he directs all attention to David rather than himself. In verse 5, we see that the, the first of a few sections in this chapter that just kind of summarize. We're going to see this here uh, and, at the, and in verse uh, 14 through 16 and then in verse 30. At the end of these like three sections, it just tells us, hey, David is successful in all that he does. As a constant r- reminder that the God is with David, he's successful in whatever he did, d- does. In this case, when Saul sets him out to war over men of war, he's victorious in battle. And all the people are, are glad that David is, is doing what he's doing, even Saul's own servants. And so we see that Jonathan displays a humility. He could have tried to exalt himself, but he doesn't. He loves the Lord, he sees the Lord's will, and even at his, the cost of his own elevation, he says, he, he says, similar to John the Baptist, right? Like, I must decrease, he must increase. May we all have that same heart. But we don't see that with the current king, with King Saul. If you look with me, starting in verse 6, at verses uh, 6 through 16. As they were coming home, when David returned from, the striking, from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. David receives great glory in song. The story kind of pulls back now, uh, back to the, the time when they are coming back from war, they're coming back from battle. David has defeated Goliath. They've pursued the armies of the Philistines and had victory. As they're coming back into the, into the town, as they're coming back through the cities, the, uh, the women are coming out and singing songs. They're, and it says they're coming out to Saul. They're, they're celebrating him. They're giving him his due. And they sing this song, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. It doesn't seem, or it's not clear, if this is meant to be a slight. In fact, it probably is not. They're not trying to, to rub it in Saul's face. They're giving him his due. He, he is responsible for the death of thousands of, of God's enemies, the Philistines. His exploits are not ignored. However, David is given more honor. Saul is very angry about this because the people are giving David greater due. Now, what is meant when it says that David killed his ten thousands? Is that to be taken literally, that in battle he killed ten thousand people? Well, 
it, it may just be, you know, giving him greater honor because of what he's done against Goliath. But it could also be a reference to the fact of that, that champion style of warfare we talked about last week where, you know, one person from each army goes to battle and whoever wins, it's almost like you defeated the entire army. So maybe that's what is attributing to David. By killing Goliath, defeating him, he essentially defeated the army, which could have been ten thousands. But Saul is angry. He's not delighted. He's not okay with somebody else getting more praise than himself. Saul's sin is pride. His whole time as king. That's, that's what his problem was, was pride. He cared more for what the people thought of him than what God thought of him. What God demanded of him. So God raises up David in the eyes of the people... And in doing so, he's causing David, he's causing Saul to suffer at the hands of his own pride. Okay, Saul, you care so much about what the people think of you. Well, as I elevate David, your own pride is going to be what attacks you. Your own pride that you gave in that caused you to lose the kingdom is going to be the very thing that afflicts you. That's often the way God seems to work when he brings uh, discipline Or when he brings judgment into someone's life. He just allows them to suffer the hand of their own sins. Live out the consequences of their own sins. He hands hands people over sometimes to their enslaving passions. You, you, You love this sin more than you love me? You're willing to obey this sin as your master rather than me? Okay. You can have it. It's now your master. And so Saul cares so much about what the people think of him that it drives him insane. He becomes paranoid. He, he, he loses all grip on reality. He fears that David has everything except the kingdom at this point, and he actually kind of right. And so now we see at this moment, at this moment, David's troubles begin, and will follow him for the rest of Saul's reign, and, and thereafter as well. But it's not by his own doings. David has done nothing wrong. David has not instigated Saul. He has not come after him. He's not spoken ill of him. But but from this point on, Saul's going to keep a close eye on David. And it it escalates very quickly in verses 10 and 11 where Saul attempts to murder him. We learned back in in chapter 16 that God had sent a harmful spirit on Saul. Pastor Tim talked about that a couple weeks ago. We find that uh, it might be a little bit unclear what's happening here. Is, it, is this an evil spirit, a, a demonic force that God is, has uh, sent to uh, afflict him in some sort of a spiritual way? Is this a reference to some mental health uh, issue that uh, God as well sent his way? Um, that it, so Saul is experiencing paranoia, paranoia uh, and madness even. Regardless of what it is, we believe God is sovereign over it and God used it in the first place to bring David into Saul's court to play, to play the, Lord, the liar, to calm him down. But now we see that this very thing that was uh, used by God to bring David into the court is eventually going to send him out of the court. While David is, is playing, the, playing the liar to calm Saul, the king goes into a rage. He becomes a raving lunatic. He's just walking, maybe walking around the house, pacing, you know, and just maybe talking to himself. He's getting angry, you know. And at one point, he's in the midst of his paranoia, he realizes he has a spear in his hand. 
And he goes into a murderous rage and he plans to throw his spear at David and impale him against the wall and so kill him. So he throws the spear, but he misses. David is able to evade him. We're actually told that David evades him twice, but that's not because probably Saul picked it up and threw it again that time. It's because, no joke, Saul actually does this again in the next chapter. Spoiler alert. Okay, He's actually going to try the same thing again. Saul is now at open war with David. He has tried to kill him directly and failed. Because of this, uh, after this, you would think, right, that, that David would be afraid of Saul. I'm just saying, if I was in a meeting with someone, they tried to impale me with a, with a spear, I probably wouldn't return. <laughs> or I probably wouldn't come back. I would be afraid of that person. Ironic is, though, that the scriptures don't say that David is afraid of Saul. It says that Saul is afraid of David. It tells us why as well. It says, uh, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. And Saul has reason to fear. He's bigger, he's taller, he's wiser, he has the power of the throne behind him, he's the one who commands the armies, and yet David is the one who has the Lord. So David has every advantage, which Saul has lost. It's really quite sad, actually, because because of Saul's pride, he cannot rejoice as he ought to. Think about it. This is a king. These are his people. If if he's thinking rightly, if he's thinking righteously, shouldn't he actually rejoice? Not that that he has lost the spirit of God, the presence of God, but that he should be rejoiced that David has the spirit of God and that David is doing amazing things for God and this is helping God's people And David is not against Saul. He is coming in and still playing the liar for him. And by the way, even after this, he will come back again, as we'll see in the next chapter. He's going to keep coming back and serving Saul. And he's still submitted to Saul. You'd think that Saul, if he was humble, would say, you know what? I'm really glad that David's here. I'm glad that David is an asset to the kingdom of Israel. And may God bless him. But pride does not allow him to do that. Pride does not allow us to do that. Pride is, is what keeps us from being able to look at God's graces and gifts to other people. When we see them, that God has done that to other people, we, we, we look with envy, with jealousy. When you see someone who, who, who has children when you don't. When you see someone who has a spouse when you don't. When you see somebody who has more money and a bigger house and more freedom when those things and you don't. It, it's even pastors, even ministry. I, if you don't know this, Pastors struggle with this when they see people in other churches or other ministries who seem like, man, that people get saved a whole lot in that church, or man, that church is really growing, or they have a they have a bigger budget than we do. Like, pastors struggle with this. Ministers, pride destroys gratefulness. It destroys our ability to look at somebody else, the way God is blessing someone else, using someone else, giving them grace and gifts, to be able to look at them and say, praise God. I pray, I thank God for what he's doing in your life. Instead, we look with envy and jealousy and eventually malice. He should be, he should have rejoicing. Instead, he's just turning it on himself. So Saul removes David from his court. He just, he gets him out of there and he makes him a commander over a thousand men that he's going to send him out into battle. And already you can see the gears turning. You know what? I'm going to send him out into battle and maybe that'll be the end of him. 
But whatever Saul's design at this point, it only serves to heighten David's visibility and likability, as we see in verses 14 through 16. David goes into battle, and instead of dying, he just he wins all the battles, right? So, so, David, so whatever Saul's plan is at this point, uh, he's just becoming more and more successful. The Lord is with him. He causes a fearful awe over Saul. All the nation loves him because of what he was doing. Notice that David has, at this point, he's lost the favor of the king, and nobody wants, would want to be in that position, right? You'd think someone like David would, would want to be on good terms with the king and not have him as an enemy. Yet David has gained the favor of the Lord, and that's what really matters. A lesser man might have complained or retaliated or, or changed his, his ways in order to make the king like him better. He may have said, oh, ugh. Saul's angry with me. What did I do? I must be, you know, and he might have been tempted to change his ways in order to find the king's favor once again. I mean, that's what Saul did, right? Saul stopped obeying God. He didn't, he didn't commit things to destruction as, as God commanded him because he didn't want to look bad in front of the people. He didn't want to tell them no because he wanted favor with the people and he lost favor with God. Honor God and he will honor you. And don't worry about what the outcome is. Honor God. Look to Jesus as your example. Jesus' whole ministry, again and again and again, he says, I am not here to do my own will. I am here to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Everything he has told me to do, I will do. And he has. And that is why you're saved today. Jesus cared nothing for the applause of the crowd or the opinions of the Sanhedrin. He didn't tremble before the Roman governors because they were a big, scary empire. He didn't back down when Satan tempted him. He did the will of his Father in heaven. And because of that, his name is the name that's exalted above every name, above all names. So just we ought to seek to do the will of God. Just walk wisely, live wisely, live honorably, do what God calls you to do, do your duty, fulfill your calling, and let God determine what happens. Whether you find favor with your boss or, the, or great men and women in the world, if God wants to elevate you, he will. You do his will. Be humble like David. And we see that this last section, 17 through 30, that we see the great humility of David contrasted with Saul's pride. Look with me at verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here is my daughter, my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me. And fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I? Who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be a son-in-law to the king? But at that time, when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Hamalothite. For a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul the thing, and it pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private. And say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. 
And the Saul's servants spoke these words in the ear of David. And David said, Does it seem a little thing to you to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him. Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these things, these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed two hundred of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. And when Saul saw and knew that the Lord is with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. When the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. In our final section, we begin to see Saul's plotting to kill David indirectly hoping that by sending him out into frequent battles, eventually some Philistine arrow, some Philistine sword is going to strike him down, and he will eventually die by their sword. And Saul will not have, have to, you know, have his own blood on his hands. As a side note, ironically and sadly, we see David attempt the same method later on in Second Samuel, when he tries to cover up his sin with Bathsheba by having Uriah, her husband, killed the same way. Saul is so twisted by paranoia and jealousy that he is willing, check this out, to even include his own daughters as bait for David. Consider how much his pride is making him think only of himself, not of his kingdom, not of the Lord, not even his own daughters, but instead David must die. He offers his first daughter, Mareb, in marriage. If only David will be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. David is perfectly willing to do that. He is a valiant and courageous man. He loves the Lord. He's already fought his battles. His hesitation is that he finds himself unworthy. Who am I? Who is my family? I don't have any wealth. I don't have anything to, to, to give. Why should I be considered the son-in-law of the king? Now, this isn't false humility, right? This is, this is not insecurity like what Saul had when he was set to be king and he was hiding among the luggage, instead, David is genuinely humble. Could he not have stood up on his own accomplishments and be like, yeah, I still have, uh, I still have uh, Goliath's sword in my room. You want to see it? It's really big. Yeah, I killed him. He could look at all, you know, the fact that he is heroic in battle or that he is ruddy and good looking. His other military victories or his popularity among the masses. He could have found any reason at all to say, yeah, you know what? I do deserve to be the king's son-in-law. I deserve this. He says, no, who am I that I should be the king's son-in-law? Saul reneges on the deal and marries her off to another man. It says, at the time when he should have given her to David, when they should have been married, he says, "Eh, never mind, he gives her away to somebody else to be married. 
One commentator suggested this, this may have been a way for Saul to just try to stir up anger in David. Oh, you know what? I'm going I'm to bait and switch. Then David will get angry and he'll do something stupid. He'll misstep. He'll speak out of turn. Maybe he'll try to attack me and I can take him down. He'll have some reason to, to, to work against David openly. But David doesn't do that, does he? We hear nothing from, about David's response that would indicate that he'd sinned. The wicked do set traps. This has always been true. Read through the Psalms. You hear David, the author of so many of the Psalms, is saying this all the time because people were constantly setting traps for people, for him. You see that Satan, the enemy, loves to set traps for God's people. But human beings also do it. But wise people don't step into those traps. And Christians, they are there they are waiting for you. There are, there, are, there, are, there are traps that the enemy is setting for you so that you will fall into sin. A wise person is someone who doesn't step into them. But rather, there are certain sets of sins that when they're in your heart, they make you easy prey. Things like pride. Things like vanity. Things like envy. These kind of passions, when they're in our heart, man, it makes us really easy to, to step into temptations, to step into traps. But a godly man or woman must walk in wisdom and not sinful passions. Must be willing to say, nope, that's not right. No matter how I feel, I'm going to do what's right. We see David, walking in humility, was protected from stepping into this trap. We see in verses 20 through 29 that Saul is not done, that that Michael, another one of uh, Saul's daughters, loves David. And Saul is delighted to hear this. Because he has, not because his daughter has found love or because, you know, but because he's like, oh great, now I have a way to murder him. He's, he has an opportunity now for his, uh, to renew his murderous plot. And for a second time, he offers David to become his son-in-law. And once again, you know, in the same situation, uh, when, he, when, when, when Saul, you know, sends his servants to say, now you become his son-in-law. David, once again, still doesn't see himself as worthy. He doesn't say, oh yeah, well the last daughter he didn't marry, am I worthy now? He doesn't do any of that stuff. He doesn't throw it back in Saul's face. He still says, do you guys think it's a little thing? Like I still, who am I? I have no money. And listen to this, he says, and no reputation. He has a better reputation than Saul in the, in the kingdom right now. He has every right to, to fall upon his own laurels and say, yeah, I actually... I do have a great reputation. But he has to be talked into it. And the way they do it, he says, I have no bride price, which would require. And so Saul says, okay, here's the bride price. Like a dowry, the thing. We don't really do this very much anymore, but like the thing that you would, would, you would have to bring to the table to show me you're worthy of my daughter's hand that you can take care of her. He says, tell you what, bring me 100 foreskins of the Philistines. In this way, you can avenge the king and defend his honor and defeat his enemies. And then you will have earned the right. That's the only bride price that's required. Then you will have earned the right to become Saul's son-in-law, marry his daughter. We don't typically offer this kind of a bride price today. But why is this? It is kind of odd to modern ears. But think about it. This would be evidence that... That, that's, that, that David had actually done it. He'd done the deed, right? He'd go out, you know, and, hey, here, here's evidence that I've actually killed 100 of your enemy. He can't just come back from battle after he'd be like, oh, yeah, I did it. 
trust me. Like, you know, you actually bring back some evidence. But the reason why this would make sense is because, remember, Israel is God's covenant people. And circumcision is a sign of being part of God's covenant people. This is not a weird thing for them. This is a, a blessed thing for them. And it's also a sign of God's people, the people who are not God's uh, covenant people, that they are uncircumcised. Remember, when, when David sees Goliath, he walks up, he's like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He doesn't say, who is this giant? He says, he's just like the rest of them. He's taller, but he's still an uncircumcised Philistine standing against the armies of God. Who does he think he is? And so in this case, it's, it's, a, it's an evidence that he's actually fulfilled the king's demands and also he's, you know, he's, he's bringing something that indicates that these are people who are enemies of God, these uncircumcised Philistines. But also a reminder just that war is not pretty, like war is bloody, and we can read this and, you know, but war, war is bloody. So this is agreeable to David, who does not know that Saul is just trying to get him killed by the Pharisees. And if, apparently there's even a time limit, right? So Saul just can't be like any old time, you know, just over, like, cumulatively over the course of the next few years, you know, as you kill Philistines, you just, just bring them to me and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll call the deal. We don't know what the time limit is. Maybe it was a month. So the idea is, it's like, hey, I'm going to force David to rush out into battle to have to, you know, attack a large garrison or something to try to do this. So he is putting that, the pressure on David, making it even harder for him. I mean, David goes out with his, with his, with his dudes and they go out and they kill some Philistines. Not 100, though. 200, right? And he brings all of that back, you know, and to Saul and says, here, here you go. I, I, I've done it. And you can just imagine Saul's frustration. Like, oh, it completely backfired in his face. And David, once again, now he's trying to kill David. And now David's just all that much more popular. Like, oh man, every time Saul sends him out, instead of dying like he's supposed to, he goes and he destroys all of God's enemies and everyone loves him. And it's, it's wonderful for David. And he has no choice but to actually marry off his daughter Michael to him. And Saul grows in fear of David. He hates him. He becomes his continual enemy from here on out. We read in verse 30 that as the commanders of the Philistines come out to battle, that David is more successful than any of other of Saul's commanders, more so than any of them, including Jonathan. David is successful in all things. And we see that in verse 5, we see that in verse 16, we see that in verse 30. Why? Because the Lord is with David. Not because David is ruddy and good looking, or because he was a shepherd and he had really, and he develops a good skill set. Not because of his youthfulness, but because God is with him and not with Saul. He's successful that all he does, and because the Lord is not with Saul, Saul fails in all of his plans. That his name, that David's name is highly esteemed. So as we kind of close this, this time up, what are some takeaways that we learn from this passage? I want to offer three things that we learn from this text. The first is that pride leads to a fall, but humility is fitting. Proverbs 29, 23 says, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly of spirit will obtain honor. You're also familiar with James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If there is one thing that God hates, it's pride. The original sin in the garden was pride. 
what caused Satan's fall was pride. God doesn't even just overlook pride and say, well, that's on you, I guess. God actively opposes a prideful person. If you or I or anyone is, has pride as a primary sin or as an active sin in your life, know that God is opposed to that and he's opposed to you in that sin. That should cause us to tremble. And yet it says God gives grace to the humble. Saul's pride was his downfall. He lost his kingdom. He lost his dignity. He lost his sanity. But David achieved great things by God's spirit working through him. And he didn't let it go to his head. He didn't love his own fame. He didn't save his own newspaper clippings. He gave all glory to God and said, who am I? Man, if you want to know a trap, the world is setting traps for you, trying to stoke your pride. We have tons of people in the world increasingly who are experiencing mental health issues, who are are experiencing, especially among young people, increasing depression, sadness, suicidal ideation, growing up, feeling lost and lonely. What answer does the world have? Well, you don't have enough pride. You need to think about yourself more. You need to think about yourself first. You need to think more positive thoughts about yourself. Sometimes under the, under the guise of self-care. And you see people who, 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 who give away good things, who abandon their family, abandon their job, abandon their church, abandon everything. Why? Under, under self-care. And they're miserable. Feeding your pride is not going to raise you up. It's going to bring you down lower. The gospel of the kingdom says the exact opposite. Jesus stands up in in the gospel of Matthew and he says, the first thing he says, repent, repent is the first thing he says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The very next chapter he preaches the greatest sermon in the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount. He starts with this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over their sins, for you will be comforted. The gospel of the kingdom is the exact opposite. It says, you know what? You are actually blessed when you understand your poverty of spirit. When you understand that you are a great sinner in need of a great savior. You are not all that. You are blessed not when you say, man, I'm actually pretty good. You are blessed when like the apostle Paul, you can say, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Praise be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You are blessed when you can sing that old hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. A Christianity that does not say, I'm a wretch, doesn't have the gospel. Because until you get to that poverty of spirit, until you can mourn over your sin rightfully, you think, well, then I'll just be sad. Well, then I'll just, you know, then I'll, I'll lose my self-esteem. It's like, no, then you'll be primed and ready for the gospel. And then you'll be blessed, was what Jesus says. Then you'll find a joy inexpressible and full of glory. So pride leads to a fall, but humility is fitting and leads to salvation. Number two, to live by passions is dangerous. To walk in wisdom is protection. Saul was led by his passions, by his pride, his anger, his paranoia. He listened to his sinful heart rather than the voice of God. He overreacted to David's rise. He plotted wicked plans, including his own family in them. 
And it didn't unfold well for him. Man, Saul is a man who was not led by wisdom. He was not led by the Spirit of God or the Word of God or righteousness. He was led by his passions. He was led by his, his heart. But David walked in integrity. He didn't retaliate when Saul tried to kill him directly with a spear. How would you react? For me, not good. If I was in a staff meeting and Pastor Tim tried to spear me, it wouldn't be good. Um, David could easily have retaliated. He knew that the, that the king was going insane. Do you think he could have spread word among the other commanders? Like, you guys can't listen to this guy. He's insane. He's losing his mind. He could have spread rumors about him. He could have elevated himself. He could have taken that spear and attacked Saul. And who would have blamed him? He kept his tongue in in, in check, he didn't badmouth the king. And when Saul offered his oldest daughter and married her off to someone else at the time when he should have been given to David, he didn't fly off the handle. He kept his peace, said nothing, even though he was greatly wronged. You know, and he was, and you wonder if all he, he could have said, "Oh man, I, I just got humiliated in front of the whole nation. This, it, I, I gotta, I gotta let the people know that I'm not going to take this, or else they're going to think that I'm a pushover, that I'm a wuss." He kept his peace. Self-control is among one of the most important virtues to keep us safe. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul writes that it's especially important for young men. Remind the young men to be self-controlled. It's a fruit of the Spirit, but it's also a virtue. And it's one that keeps us safe. It keeps us from walking into traps. It keeps us from saying something stupid that you cannot take back. But man, it's hard. But if we're guided by passions, if we just let, if, we just, if, we, if our feelings and our heart is so raw that every slight, every insult, every word, we're going to say things that we regret. We're going to do things we wish we'd never done. We see Saul doing that, living out of his sinful heart. David lived out of integrity and self-control. The ability to tell yourself no because God. That's what self-control is. I want to do this thing. No, because God. Because he said no. No matter what I want to do, I'm going to be guided by God's word. Proverbs 10.9 says, whoever walks in integrity walks securely. Number three, God causes the plans of his enemies to work in favor of his servants. Oh, God loves doing this. I think it's one of his favorite things to do. All of Saul's attempts at harming or murdering backfired. They only served to elevate David and bring about his fame among the people of Israel. Saul attempted to take David down. God used it to raise David up. Guys, God did the same thing with Jesus. The pride and jealousy of the Jews and the fear of the Romans led to the crucifixion of Christ. They thought they were putting an end to him. Yet this attempt to humiliate him, to strip him naked, to beat him, to take this folk hero, this one who's proclaiming that he is a great king, well, tell you what, let's get him naked, let's beat him and bruise him, let's put him up on a Roman cross and let people laugh at him. Yeah, then we'll, then we'll see what happens to his reputation. That only served to establish his kingdom and purchase the people that are here today and will endure forever. By the shame of the cross, Jesus conquered his foes and won his people. 
For those of you who have ever seen the passion of the Christ, they get one thing really, really well. They do one thing really, really well. When Christ is crucified, uh, you might think, oh, Satan is, you know, really excited about this. And he is, you know. But they show this, they show this scene where after Christ is, is crucified, he gives up his spirit. You see Satan just screaming, just yelling in frustration because he knows, oh no, this is my downfall. My kingdom has just crumbled. By the foolishness of preaching the gospel of Christ, the world will be reached for Christ. When the enemy persecutes the church, the church grows stronger and deeper and wider. When the saints are martyred, the kingdom spreads. God loves to turn the the devices and designs of his enemies against them and use them to elevate his gospel, his kingdom, and his people. As a story goes that a French philosopher and atheist named Voltaire, who lived in the 1694 to 1778, uh, predicted in 1776, he made this prediction, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except when one is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. He, he, he foresaw that with the Enlightenment, with the, with the rise of science and all these revolutions and liberalism, that we have gotten past this, this, this childish need for religion, this, this false morality, for, you know, that, that uh, the Bible is there. In a hundred years, the Bible's not even going to be around. He believed that Christianity was coming to an end and it was the teaching of fools. Within 50 years of his, de- his own death, the Evangelical Society of Geneva printed Bibles on Voltaire's own printing press and used his house as a storehouse for all these printed Bibles. God has a sense of humor because he will not be mocked. And he will cause his enemies to fall by the very traps that, he is, that, that they set. Even the traps that they are setting for you if you'll walk in faith and wisdom. God will cause every evil against you to serve in sanctifying you. And preparing you for glory. Because guys, there, 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 are, there is evil that is being planned and henched for you. By the enemy and by others. And by God's grace, he, he lets those things happen. He says, oh man, this too is for your sanctification. This is only going to make you more like Christ. This is only going to make you more holy. It's going to prepare you for glory. And we're going to laugh about this in the kingdom. So serve God faithfully. With wisdom, with humility and integrity. And do not fear, no matter what comes your way, if God is for you, who can be against you? I invite the worship team to come up now. We're going to praise this Lord who turns every trap against his enemies and for his works in favor of his people. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we give you praise and we thank you for an opportunity to look at your word today. We see how you work all things for the good of those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. God, that there is no weapon formed against man, formed against your servants that will prosper. Lord God, we love you. You are a God who works all things together for good. Lord, we thank you for the, uh, for the illustration of, of Saul and David and seeing how pride is so destructive and humility is so protective. Lord, for those of us who are here who are wrestling with pride, who are wrestling, Lord, with, with living out of our passions of anger and selfishness and envy, and oh God, would you grant us forgiveness. Would you grant us the ability to mourn over our sins? Would you grant us to be poor in spirit, Lord, and and to yearn to be changed? 
Grant repentance today. The people can be changed. And find joy, Lord, and find peace. For those of us, Lord, who need to grow in humility, would you help us to walk as Christ walked in humility, trusting you to elevate us in your own good time as you see fit. Lord, we, uh, we celebrate that Christ is Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.